You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Lord, as we hear the, the words of that disturbing psalm, and we seek those places of resonance in us with our own grief, our own rage, we pray that by the power of your Spirit in these moments, you would usher us into and through those places and into the full understanding of your presence with us in both places. Help us to see you, to apprehend your presence in this place. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I'm grateful for at UPC here is that um, a woman by the name of Nancy Borton, when she planned her estate, left a, a bequest to this congregation for international students. And part of that money, about six years ago, little maybe five or six years ago, went to support um, a program called International Pastor in Residence, where we brought Francis Omundi here to be with us on staff for three months. I don't know whether you remember that, if you were here at that time. Francis is an, is an Anglican uh, priest from Kenya and is probably uh, listening to this sermon because uh, he does listen to our sermons online. And so, hi, Francis, you're in the sermon. Um, and uh, he was with us for these three months, teaching us and learning from us and just sharing community with us. And uh, I amassed over those three months a series of, of statements that I called Francisisms that, uh, that he uh, deposited with me. He didn't know he was depositing those with me, but, but he did. His presence here was profound, and one of the things that I noticed about Francis right off the bat was that when he joined us for prayer before the worship, that he prayed differently than the rest of us. Most of us, you know, had the typical litany of, of pastoral pre-service prayers, you know, Lord, give energy to the preacher, and, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, all of those that uh, are kind of like word processing templates, if you will, and we would just click in and, you know, kind of go on autopilot. But when Francis prayed, you kind of wanted to stop and look up and say, hmm, that man's talking to God. <laughs> it, was, it was just appreciably different. Uh, and uh, so later on, I was talking to Francis about prayer, unrelated to that experience, but we were talking about prayer, and at one point he made this observation. He said, uh, I, you know, I, he was kind of comparing, or we were kind of comparing the, the differences between our two places, and he said, you know, you don't pray as much here because you don't have to. And then he went on to explain himself. He wasn't criticizing or judging in that. He was just making a very uh, bold and, and clear observation that we don't pray because we don't have to. And Francis said, for instance, when we have a medical emergency, we pray. You go to the hospital. We don't have a hospital to go to, so we don't. And that's why we pray. And really, in, in some ways, what Francis said is true of all of us, irrespective of where we are. We don't pray, really, unless we have to. And what's ironic about that is that if we're not schooled in prayer, if we don't pray that often, when we have to pray, sometimes we stumble over our words. Sometimes we don't know quite what to pray, and those lines from Romans 8 begin to mean something to us, that the Spirit prays for us in our weakness with sighs too, too deep for words, and, and thank God for that. But I think we, because we don't pray that often, we have a hard time pouring out our hearts before God. 
We have a hard time of taking that risk and we attenuate ourselves. We, we turn down our prayers because we're afraid of offending God or afraid of being absolutely honest with God or not really knowing if it's polite to share our rage or our grief or our frustration with him. It's hard for us to take that risk. Speaking of risk in prayer, um, if you will indulge me one more time, another Wendell Berry poem. So far, I don't have one scheduled for next week, but um, uh, you get a new book during the summer and you want to share it with everybody. But this is also from his collection. He's talking about prayer in this poem, and the poem is entitled An Embarrassment. And it goes like this. Do you want to ask the blessing? No. If you do, go ahead. He went ahead. His prayer dressed up in Sunday clothes, rose a few feet, and dropped with a soft thump. If a lonely soul did ever cry out in the company of its true outcry to God, it would be as though at a sedate party, a man suddenly removed his clothes and took his wife passionately into his arms. It would be an embarrassment if someone actually cried out with the cry on their hearts. An embarrassment because we're not used in polite, used in polite company to, to one doing that. It would be a risk. And the writer of Psalm 137 takes that risk. A risk that's very embarrassing because it's a prayer that comes from the heart of exilic rage. The rage of one lost in a place that he doesn't want to be, with people he doesn't want to be with, for a time that he can't really think about enduring. And so what he says is, I can't sing. I can't forget, and I am with someone and in a world that I have been hurt and my enemies are wanting me to sing. And all I really want for my enemies is for them to suffer the pain that's in equal measure to the pain that I am feeling. It's hard in the midst of this rage, says the psalmist, and his words are clear. It's hard to make space for this song because I can't sing it in this foreign land. It's hard to read the 137th Psalm. It's hard to hear it. It offends our Christian sensibilities about how we should forgive our enemies, and most of the Psalms, or many of the Psalms, do that because they are, in Calvin's words, an anatomy of of all parts of the soul. And so there is so much there that expresses so many things that in polite company we often refuse or fail or are afraid to express. But we all know these feelings, even if we wouldn't say them out loud. But the psalmist in Psalm 137 says them out loud. And it's in the Psalter. It's in this book that we think should only hold polite things. It's in this book that's so often quoted in Hallmark cards, and the last time I was in a card store, I didn't see one based on Psalm 137. (laughs) So how is it that this is in the Bible? Better yet, why is it that I would choose to preach on it, this 
outcry of dissatisfaction in the midst of a sermon series on satisfaction? Well, I think it's because it teaches us about reconnecting with God when we're living in a place where it feels like we'll never be full again. It teaches us about connecting with this God who is still with us, even in the darkest places, and teaches us how to pray through those times. Because, you see, it gives us a prayer to pray that puts our grief on the table before God. It gives us permission to bring this part of our soul that we would not share in polite company, to bring it right to the throne of grace. And then it also, between its lines, invites us to consider what might beyond, be beyond this, this place of dissatisfaction due to our loss. The 137th Psalm is written in the context of the exile. As I mentioned last week in 586 BC, the Babylonian armies marched into Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They sacked the temple. They hauled off most of the valuables off to Babylon. They took a number of the leaders into exile at that time, and it was an exile that lasted for 70 years. And so once those people had settled into the reality that they were going to be there for a while, they wondered how they were going to be there. And this psalm grows out of an expression of of frustration in wanting to know how to continue in relationship with God in a place where all of the familiar moorings for that relationship had been ripped away. And so they were what they felt to be taunted by their captors to sing one of the songs of Zion, to sing their religious songs in the presence of their captors so their captors could perhaps learn something about them. But irrespective of the intent of their captors, it felt to them like a taunt. It felt to them like they were, their noses were being rubbed in something that they, they, they really didn't want them rubbed in. The inspiration for them was gone. And it's a song, it was gone because it's a song that was meant to be sung in the temple. It's a song that was meant to be sung among all of the familiar accoutrements of worship. It's a song that was meant to be sung in the land, thanking God for that land. But they weren't in the land. They'd been uprooted from it. The promise of God seemed to have been violated. And so they were in Babylon in a place of a lot of water, actually. A place of of two rivers coming together. A place of lots of canals. And by those waters, what they experienced was thirst. Thirst for God and an inability to quench that thirst because of an inability to worship in the way that they once worshipped. And so they asked the question, if the inspiration is gone, if everything that made this song singable is no longer here, how is it that we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? There are two things about that question that I want to discuss with us today. There are two ways of looking at that question that I think can help us to pray in the midst of this kind of grief. Grief that we would just as soon not admit to anyone. Anger that we would never express, as I said, in polite company. In one sense, we can ask this question in the exact sense that the psalm asks it, rhetorically. Rhetorically in a way that assumes the answer, I can't sing the song. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
How is it possible to sing this song? But there's another way to ask this question as well. And it's the straightforward sense of the question. It's the place that we ultimately get when we're worn out by rage. When we're not ready to walk away from God, and yet we don't have the slightest idea of how to pray. Lord, show me. How can we sing your song in this place? Because none of the old songs we used to sing seem to make sense to us. I think by asking the question in both senses, we learn something about prayer and we learn something about praying through grief. First of all, in the rhetorical sense, that song, that question teaches us to pray our grief, to boldly go before the throne of grace and to tell God what is happening. He already knows but we're afraid to do that sometimes. We're afraid to, to step up and, and actually express what's going on in our hearts. And yet, as we know in any relationship, if we turn down the volume all the time and, and fail to tell the other what is really going on, we don't build intimacy in that relationship. So the psalmist here is honest with God and honest with himself. And essentially says, I can't do it. I've been hurt too badly by these captors of ours. I can't do it. My voice cracks when I try. Uh, The words don't make sense to me anymore. I can't sing that song. And all I feel is rage. And that rage is something that I can't move beyond. As embarrassing as this psalm is, and it is embarrassing to tell God and the world that you feel like dashing the babies of your captors against the rocks. As embarrassing as it is, we have to admit that it's a kind of grief and rage that really isn't foreign to any of us. And if you think it is, take another look. I know as a pastor that people come into worship every single Sunday. And some of you are out there right now. And what you experience are these feelings of not being able to sing the songs. I hear it all the time. I don't like coming to church. I cry when I go to church. Well, You cry because you're connecting with this truth. Or there are people who stay away because... Those songs don't make any sense to them anymore. And the very thought of going to a place that's singing them is not something that they want to do. Because the words of the songs and the happy melodies have lost their resonance for them. And they can't enter in. But I think the invitation of this psalm is not to hang up our harps on the the willow trees and to stop singing. The invitation of this psalm is not to fold our arms and to say we can't sing, but it's to tell God we can't sing. The reality of exile for these Israelites is that they were going to be there for a while. They were going to be there for 70 years. They were not going to be able to live in the false hope of somehow being rescued from there on the tiptoes of expectation that this was all suddenly going to end and they could get back to life as normal in their temple and go back and sing the songs the way they used to sing them. The story continues, friends. They go back to a temple that's rubble and they still don't know how to sing the songs. 
The reality of exile is that it was going to last for a while, and rage is a very tiring place to be. And that's what leads us to the second sense of the question. Because if we're not ready to turn on our heel and walk away from God and never come back, if we want to stay in relationship with God at some level, we're going to have to ask that second sense of the question, which is, how do we do it, Lord? Show me. How is it that we can sing this song in a place that we don't know how to sing it? Where none of the prompts that used to be there, none of the tunes that we have come to appreciate are being sung in this place. And so we've got to come up with some different way of worshiping. If we're not prepared to cut ties with God, we are going to have to ask the question in this way in this straightforward way, because we're living in exile, and exile is the norm, friends. We're always living in between this life and the next. We're we're living in between a, a life that denies the kingdom of God and a life that promises the kingdom of God, and that's exile. That's not being at home. So if we're not prepared to cut ties with God... We've got to move into this new normal. I hear people saying this all the time in the, in the face of, a, of an immense loss or of an injury or of an economic reversal that what they're dealing with is a new normal, that things are not going to go back to the way they were. So how do I approach and deal with God in light of this new normal? Because I'm tired. I'm tired of living in the place of regret and rage And I'm realistically understanding now that this is going to go on for a while and I've got to figure out what it means to relate to God in this time and in this place. What is it going to mean and what is it going to look like to dwell in this place and to still be in relationship with God? Even though I'm not home, that's the question of the exile, even though I'm not home, can I still be in relationship with God? Well, there isn't a time in our daily lives where we as Christians are not asking this question. As I said before, exile is not the aberration. It's the norm. Our lives daily present present us with situations that, that seem to deny or run counter to the truth and the reality and the goodness of the kingdom of God. It's like when our spouse might leave us because they tell us that we're not enough. Or when your employer demands productivity that runs counter to your sense of ethics. Or you powerlessly watch the outworking of injustice as you turn on the TV or log on to Google News or read the newspaper. And you see the injustice of human trafficking in our world, the scope of which outnumbers the number of African slaves that were brought to this continent and the South American continent in the 17th and 18th centuries. Or maybe like when you are reeling from the effects of one of your own poor choices and you understand yourself to be far from God, but wanting to reconnect. That's what it means to live in exile. 
It means to live in the the grief of a loss so deep that we don't think we're ever going to be able to sing again. But the invitation here is to ask the second sense of that question. We're challenged in the midst of that exile to ask that question, what does it look like to relate to God in this place? And you know what? The psalmist doesn't have an answer for that question, and I'm glad he doesn't. I'm glad that we end this psalm with that abject rage, because that's where some of us have to live for a long time. But thank God there are answers in other places in Scripture about how to sing this song. One of them is later on in Jeremiah, in the 29th chapter, where he writes a letter to the exiles. We're familiar with the second half of that letter, but we rarely read the first half of that letter. And really, the second half of the letter only makes sense in context. But we like to rip things from context in Scripture. (laughs) The letter that Jeremiah says, in order to invite people to pray the prayer in that second way, in that straightforward way, to ask the question, he says this, verse 4, 29, chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's the advice. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of this city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Plug in, in other words. Plug in and and live your life and begin to look for the presence of God in this new place. Build houses, plant vineyards, take wives and husbands, have children, put down roots in this place and see that even there I am with you, says God. Or Peter, to first century Christians who were on the verge always of, of persecution, either from one side that their Jewish ancestors who did not approve of this new sect uh, within Judaism, or on the other side of Roman persecutors who didn't get it. And so Peter says something similar to what Jeremiah says. He says essentially, remember who you are. First Peter 2, beginning at verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you are not a strange Judaistic sect that's simply a a blemish on Rome and an irritant to fly in the ointment. No, you are a chosen race. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles, abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. This is who you are. Be who you are, even in this place, and look for the presence of God to guide you. 
Seek to live your life in this place in light of the larger truth. Be who Jesus has called us to be. Salt and light. So the question is how? Well, I wish I could recommend an energy drink, a pill, some kind of quick remedy. But it's to remain in the place. Simply to remain in the place that we are and wait and watch and look for the signs of grace in our midst. It's to pray. And it's about talking to God and asking him both sides of that question. How can we sing? And Lord, tell us, how can we sing? Choosing to believe that life is set in a bigger context than the context of whatever exile we know. And I leave you with an image to help you. When our children were ages four and seven months, we went to our favorite place on earth, Yosemite Valley. We haven't seen that many places on earth, but so far that's the favorite. Yosemite National Park, the valley floor. And we went camping. And we loved camping and hadn't done much of it, especially with a seven-month-old and a four-year-old. And we were in this beautiful place, Yosemite. If you've been there, you know these immense granite rock faces that just loom up on all sides of you, these glorious meadows. You know, you can't go anywhere but see a picture that needs to be taken. And that's what a lot of people do. (laughs) But there we were as a family learning the lesson that vacation is really nothing more than taking care of your kids in a place where it's harder to do it. So we were in this beautiful, idyllic temple of Yosemite Valley, and we were like this the whole time. (laughs) Our heads were down, our, our backs were sore. You know, we were just taking care of our kids in a place where it was harder to do it. And to make matters worse, at the end of it all, we had this canvas tent. It was April. It rained. And the tent became a sponge. And then it began to release its water from the inside. Well, while Marianne and the kids sat in the car, I broke camp. And we drove the speed limit as fast as we could out (laughs) of this glorious temple. (laughs) Wherever we are, We are in the presence of this glorious temple of the presence of God. But sometimes we don't look up. And sometimes we don't know that we're there. And so the answer to the question of how we pray through grief is to first of all admit the grief and secondly to look up. Because you see, we live our lives even in exile, surrounded by the persistent witness of God's presence. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, take us 
into your arms, which is where we are and where we belong. Help us to recognize that space that we occupy. And then help us to move through these places of exile and grief, understanding that we are never far from your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.